From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, one of the fun things about doing this podcast is talking to some incredibly accomplished people in various fields. Yes, indeed. I think we've had, what, three Nobel Prize winners on as guests? We've been pretty lucky that way. But we also try to make sure that we invite people who are good communicators of their ideas. And this is also true of today's guest, who is both an accomplished engineer and innovator, but also has the additional title of chief science advocate. Ooh, interesting. I look forward to learning more about what someone with that title does. Dr. Sait, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start with your background. Uh, where were you born? What did you study in school? How did you end up being a chief science advocate? Yeah, so a little bit about my journey. I actually grew up in India on the campus of uh, one of the oldest and most prestigious engineering institutes there. And my dad was a university professor. Uh, so we lived on the campus. I was surrounded by, you know, STEM professionals, scientists, engineers, and uh, all of us kids, my brother and I, all our friends, we were highly encouraged to go into STEM. And back in the day where I grew up and when I grew up, when your parents strongly encourage you to do something, you just go along. I was actually more drawn to uh, humanity subjects and I was drawn to fields where this contextual pull of a, of a human context was strong. And I just didn't see that in STEM fields at the time. But in looking back, I'm glad I did pursue STEM because my my uh, humanities mindset has actually paid rich dividends in my STEM journey. So after my undergrad in chemical engineering, I ended up in the U.S. for graduate school. And during my Ph.D. program, I uh, came to 3M as a summer intern and uh, they offered me a full time position. So I graduated I, and I came back the following year. And I joined 3M. And it was a company I had really never heard of just a year before. But here I was. And I started in the area of components for diapers. And I had actually never seen a diaper before. Uh, so it was quite an incredible experience to develop tapes and adhesives and fasteners and elastics for for babies that really can't give us much feedback. So I brought in this sense of empathy and a user-centric view because I think science is a very human endeavor and does have a strong humanities context. We just don't talk about it. So I made that a cornerstone of my career and also in this additional role that I was asked to take on in 2018, that of the first ever chief science advocate for 3M. So I've been doing that role in addition to my role as a scientist, and I've been at 3M for almost 30 years now. And over the years, I've worked on many different products and technologies, you know, mostly industrial. And I have risen through the levels and I'm currently at this highest level a scientist can attain at 3M. And I bring in a human context in all I do. I'm a generalist. I chase after problems to solve. And I like to say I may not be qualified to work on most of what I work on, but I feel justified. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about here, and uh, I think many of us uh, feel a certain amount of imposter syndrome, So, um, and oftentimes unjustified. I certainly do uh, a lot of the time. But let's start with just uh, this uh, chief science advocate role. What, what does a chief science advocate do, uh, or what do you do, and uh, why would a corporation have such a role? 
That's a very uh, good question. So in so science is is our most distinguishing characteristic. It, it what ties our businesses together. It's the foundational strength behind our brand at 3M. Science applied to life, and you know. Our purpose is to unlock the power of people, ideas, and science uh, to reimagine what is possible. So we care about science, and we're always interested in what the world thinks about science. And we were trying to understand if there was a recent survey that had been done, which was global in nature, to understand what the public perception was. And this was in 2017. And we didn't find anything, so we actually commissioned one. Uh, so we went to 14 countries, 1,000 respondents per countries. And when the results came back, it was uh, kind of jaw-dropping, at least for me, I'll say. So 40% of those surveyed said that if science didn't exist, their lives would be no different. And 32% of those surveyed said they considered themselves science skeptics. And in this population, 60% said if science didn't exist, their lives would be no different. Jaw-dropping, isn't it? But now get this. They were taking their survey on laptops and mobile phones. So it's very clear that science is invisible, underappreciated, and taken for granted. And that's when we decided that these results really can't be something that we hold close to our vest. This is something that needs to be shared. We need to really foster a global conversation around this topic. So I was called upon, really, to become this chief science advocate, uh, a new role that was created to advocate for science, because uh, we need people to appreciate science. It has uh, far-reaching consequences. Of course, with the pandemic, things have changed. And uh, actually now, science is really having its moment, because people saw uh, the role science and scientists uh, can have in getting us out of uh, situations like the pandemic and also connecting up with uh, the is issues and challenges we face, like sustainability. So, yeah, that's how my role was created. I got the call. You know, I, it's Michael, it's funny. I, you know, you hear people tell the stories, well, I got the call. And I'm like, you did not get the call. <laughs> well, you do get the call because I got the call. <laughs> did you say yes immediately? You know, it's funny that you ask. I was actually sitting at Amsterdam airport when the call came. And my first reaction was, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What is this role now? Because I've never heard of this role. And, you know, if you Google it, you see it doesn't really exist anywhere. And the other thing in my mind was, oh, my gosh, they're asking me to be the chief science advocate. I can't do that because I need to let them know that I was never interested in science and engineering. It was literally my parents who pushed me into this field. I have never secured admission to any top colleges, and I came into 3M through the back door as a summer intern. So I really have to let them know this, you know. And then I was thinking about, well, who did they ask, and how did they define science, and how can people say this, and all those questions, you know, and then it finally all started coming together for me, you know, my own story of how we, uh, you know, don't inspire young people to science by saying the things that can be inspirational for a lot of us. And uh, also my experiences in raising my kids, a son and a daughter, and it was very clear how uh, the content was enough to inspire my son. But with my daughter, it was always the context. The context was so important to her. Uh, so I realized, you know, it isn't just the science and how you define it or whatever. It's the perception the public holds. And we really need to advocate 
for it. So I, I took this role on and I'm really glad I did. So yeah, I every year we uh, do the survey. We have been doing it since 2017, like I said. And so I uh, speak to the results of the survey, uh, communicate the key messages from there, what we're finding, what this state of science is, what is it revealing around the world. Uh, you know, in 2022, we went to 17 countries. Uh, then we also do a lot of programming based on what we find. So, for instance, um, one of the data points that was very clear was that we need to do more to encourage women and girls to go into STEM and stay in STEM. Uh, 88% of the world agrees that we need to increase diversity in STEM and things like that. So one of the things we did, which I'm really proud of, was a docuseries that 3M created. Now, you may know us for our post-it notes and... Uh, you know, for our scotch tape. And now most people know us also for our N95 respirators. Um, but uh, we we created a docuseries called Not the Science Type. And it basically highlights the journey of four women scientists and uh, their paths. And we basically want to inform and influence and inspire and to uh, shatter the stereotypes of who enters and who persists and who excels in STEM. So that's just one example of, of the kind of things we do as a result uh, of the results becoming available each year. In the past, we have done a podcast series and we pick apart the results of the survey. Uh, we have done a, a series called Beyond the Beaker, where we portray scientists as regular people because the uh, results of the survey basically said that people think scientists are elitist, you know, they're they're chasing some things and uh, that's not connected to real life, etc. We also created a scientists as storytellers guide, and it's downloadable from our website. And it basically gives tips on how to become a good communicator and talk in a way that can relate. In 2020, when 55 million kids in U.S. alone were transitioning to this in-home learning, we created Science at Home, a series, a video series where diverse 3M scientists and a few guests we do using simple household materials, some experiments that people can follow along, kids can follow along. And then I talk a lot and I write a lot. Uh, I talk at uh, different events. I give presentations, keynotes. Uh, we pull in celebrity spokespeople um, just to amplify the messages. And then I write, and most of my essays are actually compiled in the two books that I've just completed. Well, there's a lot to, to pull on here. Let's Let's start maybe with um, gender and STEM, uh, which is a, a topic that uh, you've written about and, and spoken about a lot. In many scientific fields, we do see underrepresentation of women. Uh, we've been fortunate on this podcast to have, you know, prominent scientists such as yourself, Jennifer Dowden, et cetera. And yet, if you we look statistically, uh, oftentimes women are underrepresented in STEM fields. Uh, why? What's going on? Yeah, that's something that we think about a lot. And... Um... It's interesting, even if you go back to the social science experiment on, on, on picture a scientist uh, and draw a scientist, and uh, at a very young age, uh, girls draw women. Um, but by the time they're older, they start drawing men as scientists. So uh, obviously, there's a lot of social conditioning at play and things that stop girls from imagining themselves and even their entire gender in the field. And uh, role models have a strong role to play. When you look at a textbook, do you see a lot of women portrayed as scientists? That has a role to play. 
Uh, there's the role of uh, media and the portrayal of scientists as a, let's say, uh, evil or a genius or a maverick or a loner or a nerd or a socially awkward or usually a male. Uh, you know, those kinds of things really don't inspire um, girls or boys for that matter. And so that is changing and has to uh, change a lot to give a more wholesome image. And the way I like to say it, it's time for steam cleaning. Uh, you have to shatter the stereotypes. Um, you have to provide exposure and encouragement. You have to tell the whole story about science. And what I mean by that, it is that, you know, science solves problems. If you have problems, you can solve them by pursuing, you know, STEM and talk about the human context of these uh, problems. Then we need men as allies and advocates. Uh, this is not a zero-sum game. We'll all benefit from it. And finally, metrics and measures. Uh, sometimes without those things just don't change. So we have to put some metrics and measures around uh, diversity. And for listeners who didn't catch it, I think you made an intentional pun when you said steam cleaning. Can you say what steam means, please? Yes, uh, for uh, it's science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. But uh, mine is uh, S is for shattering stereotype, T is for telling the wholesome story, E is for exposure and encouragement, A is for allies and advocates, and M is for metrics and measures. I'm a big fan of creating this acrostic style. Indeed, indeed. You're, at least one of your books is absolutely full of, of really uh, provocative acronyms. But what's interesting between STEM and STEAM is the addition of, of arts. I, I've also you know, re read that you have also talked about STEM with humanities as the H in there. I can uh, give you my shtick at STEM, science, humanities, technology, engineering, and math, because that human context and bringing uh, the humanities and, and those fields and, and sort of the liberal art uh, into the sciences is, is phenomenal for science because, you know, in our drive for answers, uh, the humanities context can drive us towards asking the right questions, you know, where science is seeking to analyze, humanities can help us. Uh, synthesize. And I think uh, it's just a nice uh, rounding off because it allows you to think empathetically and, uh, you know, uh, critically and um, communicate more effectively. Can you make that real for us? You're a chemical engineer. I remember when I was an undergrad, chemistry was considered one of the quote-unquote hardest engineering disciplines. How is it that humanities or arts can inform or you know, connect with science in a way that, that results in better outcomes, better products, or better services, or better inventions? Oh, I can give you an example uh, from my experiences in developing uh, diaper tapes. Um, you know, it's interesting that you can ask the caregiver, and you can ask the parents, and you can ask a lot of people about what exactly you need to build in to make the best diaper tape possible. But really, the end user is is somebody who just cannot tell you what they need in that diaper. The baby. The baby. Yeah. And yeah. it always hit me because uh, it was like, yeah, we're we're asking everybody, but really, the end consumer or the end user rather uh, has has no say in it. We we of course we try to understand what is needed. So I feel like. I was consumed by that idea and the way of thinking I had 
forced me to think about a baby and what they're going through and envision what it feels like to have this on them and how we can make a better and better product based on what they would want. And so some of the designs that we created and some of the uh, flexibility that we built in and uh, some of the softness and those kinds of things, they were all driven by thinking through what this user who can't really express themselves would have to say. So bringing those elements of empathy along with the components of engineering, I think, is the right balance. Um, and that really leads to better innovation because you're giving it a very human context, in my view. Oh, that's so, so interesting. Also hard, I imagine, again, trying to... It is because at sometimes it's at, at odds with the engineering principles too, right? Because there are certain things for, uh, you know, productivity and efficiency and uh, speed and all of that. And you're, you're counterbalancing it with some of the needs that may impact those parameters. So it's a good discussion, but that is exactly the reason you need that diversity of thought in that room to have all these views uh, so that we can come up with the best possible solution. And increasing diversity uh, has been correlated with increasing innovation. I also think increasing diversity can lend itself to people having a more positive perception of science. And of course, these days you have increasingly progressive customers, so it can increase loyalty as well. So that's both gender diversity and other types of diversity as well? Yes, any vector that you can bring in. Uh, you know, we have some huge challenges uh, to face ahead of us, and we have to unlock the, you know, key to a sustainable future. And I think we need all the diversity we can muster to crack the code. For somebody who didn't start out thinking that they were a science and engineering kid, today I'm at the highest level you can attain. I'm the chief science advocate. I have 76 patents to my name. I think about it each and every day. How many ideas, how many innovations, how many students and how many scientists are we missing out on because of how we teach, how we train, how we track, how we typify, and how we even talk about STEM? If only somebody would have explained the context back then that, look, this is going to be really helpful when we will have to grow crystals in space because materials will have to be made in space when we have to go to Mars. You can't come back to Earth. Oh, that makes so much more sense. But it is so content-focused. It's always about the content. And at that time, I wasn't equipped to look for the context and develop that context. But now I am. And with everything I do, I develop that context. And I will tell you, it isn't just me. I'm able to then mobilize the, the group because you've got this clear vision of how it is helping the stakeholders. So that's, that's remarkable. It basically is saying we're losing potential science talent because the way we describe science doesn't always explain how this can help people. Absolutely. And I saw that in case of my daughter. She was extremely excited from that perspective once she knew what the context of something was. But if you just focus on the content, she can't get past the fact that she's doing something she doesn't understand why 
it's important. So, you know, and there's a classic example that I heard one time from Girl Scouts, you know, when they said, well, who wants to earn a cybersecurity badge? And of course, girls, you know, not raising their hands. And when somebody said, who wants to help their grandparents from, well, from scams, every hen goes up, right? Because the context is so critical. Oh, that will help my grandma and grandpa to make sure that they don't, uh, you know, fall uh, prey to this. And, and how many times, Michael, when you look around, you'll see that we focus on content, whether it is in the uh, subject descriptions, topic descriptions, uh, job descriptions. I mean, it's just so content focused. And in fact, there is research out there that suggests that underrepresented minorities have pro-social goals and then look for that communal context in things uh, like science. So it's a win-win, really, because we have all these sustainability challenges we face, and we have all these minorities that we need in STEM. We have to just put them together and say, look, you want to solve this problem for your community. Then here's science needs you, and let's, let's do this. You've you know, reached the highest heights in your organization. You also write about leadership, talk about leadership. Can you say more about you know, what you've observed in your career and, and, and overall about leadership and particularly, you know, your company as well as others that have a lot of technologists often have, uh, you know, two tracks, a, a track for advancement that is primarily tech, you know, on the, on the merits of one's technology contributions or scientific contributions. Another one is, is more uh, around management and you've made some mm-hmm. choices in your career. Um, maybe you could just Tell folks what you've what you've learned and how you thought about your own choices. Yeah, we are very fortunate at 3M. Uh, not only do we have a strong culture of collaboration, a sense of empowerment, and communal context sort of built into our vision. You know, signs apply to life, and we also have uh, dual tracks, as you say. One is just technical, and one is you can uh, switch from technical to managerial, and you can have uh, people responsibilities. And regardless of which path uh, we follow and what career we end up in, I think real growth and true leadership and self-actualization comes from uh, getting in touch with our feelings and dissecting them, you know, truly understanding our sense of identities uh, and its evolution because we do evolve. And then tap into our needs at a very innate human level and integrate these learnings with our lived experiences to really work through, you know, tough transition, deep reflections and meaningful actions. And at the end of the day, it is about what is inside all of us, but it just takes time to sort of notice and read and realize um, this fine print. So I talk a lot about that in my my second book, which is The Heart of Science, Engineering, Fine Print. And fine is essentially that, feelings, identities, needs, and experiences in the uh, Jayashree acrostic style. But I think the reason why I say that is the pandemic has clearly shown us that there is a lot more to leadership and there's a lot more to people and uh, how we operate, what we think, how we feel. And so I really think that Regardless of which career you end up in, uh, you have to think about um, where you're going, what you're doing, and how you're doing it. And so that leads to the name of the first book, which is Footprints, Fingerprints, and Imprints. 
Uh, so where you go, what you do, and, and how you do it is important because that's the imprint that you leave on hearts and minds. And leadership is all about, um, you know, figuring out who you are, what's holding you back, and how you can lead others and yourself in a way that you can be proud of. And one other thing that we've talked about, you've talked about, and that we've touched on a little bit is underrepresented minorities in STEM fields. You know, for some communities, while they enter STEM fields, they actually find some challenges advancing up corporate and other hierarchies. Any reflections on those, you know, from your research and your own experience? Yeah, it's a significant issue. I think it's very well known. And the problem is, especially in science, is uh, environments that lack diversity are essentially uh, like echo chambers, right? The same voices continue to uh, reflect and reverberate, and uh, the problem sets are identified with the, uh, you know, very narrow point of view. And uh, that lends itself to uh, vulnerability, and we don't want that. So we definitely want to increase the level of diversity at all levels, including leadership, so we can identify and define problem sets adequately and strive for the best solution. So it is a problem. But it is a problem across what I call the ecosystem, essentially from exposure to encouragement to empowerment, education, economics, uh, and then all the way to equity in the workplace. So we have to pay attention to this entire spectrum. And uh, I'm very proud that 3M is very active in uh, STEM encouragement in the communities that we operate in. Uh, right from early childhood education. And uh, this requires support from community leaders and parents and teachers and educators and employers all across this. Because like you said, many enter STEM and may leave STEM. Many enter their careers and feel like they've uh, been passed up for promotions because we don't have good uh, systems to have uh, equity in place. And empathy or the empowerment that people may feel of what they can and can't do or the stereotypes that hamper their progress. So I think there's a lot that is being done, a lot more needs to be done, but I'm very hopeful that we're making uh, inroads into this issue. And so uh, things like uh, Not the Science Type, the docuseries that we created, are really good to show that people can blaze their trails and uh, shape their careers and follow their passions and bring in my interests like I did uh, with my interest of, in social sciences and humanities into STEM uh, and that the world will be better off for that diversity. That's inspiring to hear. Let me come back to the fact that you've been at, at, at your company for almost three decades, and it is famously an innovative company. You mentioned some of the products. I, I think it originally started manufacturing sandpaper, amongst other things, and invented mm -hmm. the asthma inhaler uh, that, that many asthma patients use around the world. Um, but there are a set of practices uh, about 3M. Like long before Google started talking about their 20% time, uh, 3M had its 15% culture. So, uh, yes, we what, did. What is that? And how in the world could that possibly work? Oh, it works wonderfully. It's a sense of empowerment that you feel. It is understood that you are going to be innovative when you're at 3M, it's part of an expectation. And uh, for your time, you, you don't have to. 
Um, report to your manager what you're doing in your 15%. You can pick any idea that you think will benefit 3M and pursue it. So I have an idea that I'm working on in my 15% time. Uh, let's say I, I have an idea for a uh, tape that can benefit uh, in the division that I'm not, but I've been exposed to some uh, situation at home where I thought, hey, that could be a good product for, for those folks. And um, I can actually write a grant and receive a grant from 3M to work on this idea. So, so that's there. And then there's an opportunity to convert that into a product uh, for that division uh, through our um, product development process. There's a reward associated with doing these kinds of things. And there's the constant socialization of the concept of being innovative. So I have to say that it essentially uh, forms the word errors. Because when I get asked this question a lot, how do you do this at 3M? So I talk about, you know, our technical forum that brings people together because you have to bring people together. Once they're together, they're talking about all these different ideas they have and other people feel empowered to help them because we have the 15% time, which says, hey, you're empowered. You can go work on things that you think help someone else and it may not be anything to do with your own uh, business unit. And then we have these grant programs that peers decide and give the money. Uh, and so it's wonderful that the company has committees made of peers where we can say, yeah, this seems like a great idea and let's let's pursue it. So I call it, if you don't do all of these, it's uh, it, these are errors. Uh, e is for expectation, R is for resources, risk-taking, O is for opportunity, R is for reward, and S is for socialization. So uh, that's my view on how we... Uh, inculcate, maintain, foster this culture of empowerment and innovation is by doing those things. And you mentioned geniuses before, but, you know, I do think there's this myth of the sole inventor. And um, it's a myth because in general, things are are um, are uh, done in teams, usually small ones. So how does that work, though, if, uh, you know, as you said, you, you know, you have some idea for an innovative product or invention, how do you get other people to work on it if it's your 15% time or? Yeah, so we all are empowered to have our 15% time. So let's say I have an idea and I'm at a Tech Forum event and Tech Forum is the 3M technical community and we come together for a lot of poster sessions, seminars and things like that. And I say, hey, I think, uh, you know, you'd really um, benefit in this division having this this product and uh, would you want to work with me in your 15% time? And people will say, you know what? Yeah, that sounds very interesting. I'd be interested. Or they may say, you know what? I'm working on something else uh, very actively, but I know, uh, you know, such and thus who can help you. And then you discuss this idea, you plan some experiments, you do some literature searches, and then you go, okay, we've done this. It looks promising, but to take it to the next level, we need funds. So now let's write for a, for a grant. So these are called Genesis grants. You write for this grant and you say, okay, five people from these different areas. I'm in the lab. This person is doing this in the technology lab. This person is doing this in application engineering. And I, we together, and this person is in analytical. And if we form this team, we can take this to the next level. Please give us uh, XX amount of dollars and we will show these results. And then you can get the money and pursue that. And let's say you don't happen to get the money that round, you can apply for the grant again and you can still keep working on it, um, you know, if you for whatever you can do without having to spend a lot of money. 
because uh, you still are empowered to spend your 15% time on it. Got it. And so this is, you know, hearkening back to the leadership discussion, this is a set of leadership skills or things to do, recruiting other people, inspiring them about an idea, organizing, you know, perhaps applying for money and all those sorts of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And those are the kinds of things that, you know, I'm not sure we teach our our students. Maybe now they do, but, uh, you know, it's like, how do you communicate? How do you interact with people? How do you sort of put this picture together? That's a compelling narrative that influences others, that involves others, that inspires others, that instructs others, that informs others. Those are critical skills for STEM professionals, in my view. Because as you said, innovation is a team sport. It's not something you do in isolation. And so you can have an idea, yes, but at the end of the day, to convert it into something that is a commercialized uh, uh, product, you need other people. Very interesting. Let me come back to another topic that um, you'd raised. Again, you've been doing this uh, state of science survey um, in many countries for for a few years now, um, and clearly, you know, for the past few years, uh, we've you know been experiencing a pandemic, uh, which has had a huge part of our, which has been a huge part of our lives. Um, in some ways, it's demonstrated the power of science, and I think you you know cite, cited some figures that illustrate how people are recognizing that more. But it has also had an impact on different people's perception and understanding of science and trust. Um, so what have you found as as you've been examining this research over the years? Yeah, it's very interesting right now. Trust in science and scientists is the highest it has been. And uh, it's primarily because I feel uh, science was in the public discourse and scientists were center stage uh, during the uh, pandemic. And, and, and there's no doubt in my mind that science uh, played a huge role in vanquishing this pandemic. And we also saw that uh, public recognized that science and scientists and professionals in STEM have a huge role in, in shaping the future of the world. So it's very important for us to bolster the foundation of public trust in science uh, because it's giving them hope right now, hope for our planet, uh, hope for our health, hope for the next generation in STEM. Uh, we're finding that uh, the public is placing uh, their trust in solving sustainability challenges, and they're saying yes, science can make uh, a, you know a, a better uh, a solution set and can help with that uh, with with the problems we're facing. And people are also seeing that science can help uh, uh, solve healthcare challenges, not just the pandemic, but but other. Uh, healthcare issues that people have. So for the first time, it seems like those connections have been made. Uh, and then the way I like to really say it is it, that 2020 became the year to stem skepticism because uh, people saw the science of health for the health of science, because when your health is involved, science got personal. It gave a great opportunity for people to understand that science relies on data and debate and discourse and discussion. And aren't we glad it does? And it's a good thing that scientists, you know, change their recommendation as new data becomes available. And that's how it works. So it was the first time we got the opportunity to educate the public on how that scientific method works. And people also recognized that um, you can trust science and scientists 
So that is a good thing because we don't want to be in this paradox of trust situation, trust paradox where people don't uh, you know, to want to understand science because they don't understand science and they don't want to understand science because they don't know about science. So so with that said, you know, some other surveys have revealed a declining trust in institutions overall. And as you said, the scientific process, you know, not just hypothesis generation, et cetera, but the, the, the social process of it can be quite confusing because there are scientists who have real scientific credentials, who engage in debates. And uh, oftentimes someone can find somebody with a credential who who says something, and it might be very different than the scientific consensus. And of course, through scientific history, we found people who are, um, you know, went against the consensus and they were right. And so how how could a citizen who's not an expert in vaccines or climate make sense of what appears to be a debate amongst scientists. Yeah, that's a really uh, astute uh, sort of observation because I think it played out during the pandemic. We clearly saw that when we didn't have answers and when the science hadn't been communicated and a lot of it was being developed on the go, we had the infodemic because of misinformation and disinformation becoming Uh, rampant. And we all sort of developed uh, a sort of pandemic logic, it is being called. And this this logic had not just emotion, but a whole lot more wrapped into it. It was also evolving and often impacted by whatever the latest conversation or debate or text exchange we had. And uh, it basically showed us that we are all uh, social animals and we'll all figure out our own way Till somebody comes up with the, uh, a theory and, and tell us what is going on. It placed the importance on critical thinking skills, really, in my mind. And uh, people define critical thinking as, as, as purposeful, uh, reasonable, and reflective thinking when you're faced with you know, complex issues and, and conflicting situations. And you know, the first aspect of that is inquiry. You know, it, it represents finding relevant information. It represents critically examining it, examining it, you know, questioning validity of assumptions, and then synthesizing the information. And then the second aspect is, is argumentation, which signifies reasoning that supports an idea or theory or action. And you have to look at uh, it in light of the evidence and you have to weaken uh, the other position. So you can't expect people to have scientific thinking, but it is good to have critical thinking skills because scientific thinking is also under the umbrella of critical thinking. Um, But that's more about, you know, meaning of information in scientific domains. Um, But critical thinking just is, is, is important because there's a lot of pseudoscience, as you said. And how do average ordinary people figure out what is what? And so now we understand that there is a logic that we all develop when there's a vacuum and when we are stretched or stressed or spent. And now we need to figure out how do we make sure we have critical thinking skills so that we can't fall prey to misinformation and disinformation, which is rampant. So... It will be an, a process of evolution, and then we have to keep inculcating in our uh, young folks and our, our kids and even our uh, adults the idea of critical thinking. 
think that's a terrific call to action. If you don't mind, I, I'd love to end with a quick lightning round of uh, quick questions and quick answers, as is our custom. Okay. All right, here we go. What's your favorite source of information that you use to keep yourself abreast of developments in science? Um, yeah, I've got lots of um, things I follow on social media. So it's science, nature, scientific American, uh, just some um, podcasts, blogs. So a lot of things, not just one. What do you find most exciting about science today? Uh, the convergence of different fields, the confluence of different uh, thought processes, I think that's at those borders and boundaries, I think is uh, the biggest scope for uh, progress. So I, I love that when multiple fields come together. What worries you most about science today? Ah, well, what worries me sometimes is that if we keep thinking too linearly, uh, that would be a problem. I think we need to have more holistic thinking and more dialectical thinking sort of woven into how we think of science, not just in some linear fashion. What's the one thing a country could do to best support progress in science? Uh, make sure that uh, we uphold the scientific method and uh, explain and, and uh, bolster that trust that that's how it works. Because the one thing I'm noticing is the minute something happens, people, oh, they changed their mind. Oh, they did this. Well, that's how it works. Uh, you know, more data becomes available, recommendations change, and aren't we glad they did that? So supporting the scientific method, educating about the scientific method, and appreciating the scientific method. What's the one thing a company could do that would best support progress in science? Is to talk about um, the science behind their inventions, innovations, and uh, give the scientists uh, a human persona so that people are more willing to accept what comes because we've all seen that science can be rejected and uh, technology will not be trusted and products will be obsoleted because it's no longer just about the practice of science. It's also who are the practitioners. It's not just about the po policies. It's also about the politics. And it's just not about one monolith of people. It's also the perceptions we hold. What's the one thing a parent could do that would help improve a child's interest in understanding science? Encourage their curiosity. Engage in their curiosity. If you weren't doing the jobs you're doing today, what would you be doing? Ah, I would uh, be a journalist. I think um, I just loved writing so much, so author or journalist is, is more like it. And what's the one piece of advice you have for listeners of this podcast? Yeah, I think uh, everybody should uh, find their discomfort zone and get comfortable with it. Wonderful. Dr. Jayshree Sait, thank you so much for joining us. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. 
References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.